Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Tuesday morning. I think it was about a month ago that we actually had the election, uh, but here we are a week later. President still sulking in the White House, refusing to concede. Uh, he continues to spread misinformation and conspiracy theories, and Republicans appear to be all in. Uh, this was the major development over the last 24 hours. The congressional leaders led by Mitch McConnell are completely okay with the president challenging the the election. Only a handful of Republican officials have acknowledged the results and congratulated the president-elect. And we, we had a discussion yesterday on the podcast about what percentage of Republicans out there among the base would doubt that the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election and I think that we went back and forth between, well, 20% would be bad, but you know maybe it might be 40%. It turns out it's 70%. This new morning consult poll shows that 70% of Republicans now say they do not believe the 2020 election was free and fair. Wow. So we had the split screen once again yesterday. We have President-elect Biden, who is trying to get the nation to shift its focus onto this looming pandemic disaster, this third wave, which will be the worst ever on the one hand, and the president uh, continuing his, well, whatever it is, his, his bunker strategy. He fired his secretary of defense, Mark Esper, and then he got the Department of Justice to authorize an investigation of allegations of voter fraud, which we don't really know what they are. And the New York Times reported that reported that uh, Barr's action prompted the Justice Department official who oversees investigations of voter fraud, a guy named Richard Pilger, to step down from the post within hours. So um, the big question is, how alarmed should we be about all of this? Is this just going through the motions? Is this just fan service? Are people just trying to you know, have, you know, be, be sensitive to Donald Trump's feelings? Or are we actually seeing something that is alarming. Before we get into this uh, with our with our guest today, who's going to we're going to do a deep dive into this. Here's a reminder of the American tradition that we have had up until really this moment that every defeated candidate for president has given a uh, a concession speech. And most of them, many of them have been not just gracious but even eloquent because they're expressions of belief in the integrity of our democratic process and an acknowledgement of how fundamental it is to acknowledge our system of the peaceful transfer of power. NBC News did a montage some time back, and it's worth it is worth revisiting. Let's play this. One of the great features of America is that uh, we have political contests that they are very hard fought, as this one is hard fought. And once the decision is made, we unite behind the man who is elected. I have no bitterness, no rancor at all. I say to the president, as a, as a fellow politician, that he did a wonderful job. Mr. Nixon has won. The democratic process has worked its will. So now let's get on with the urgent task of uniting our country. Congratulations on your victory. I hope that in the next four years, you will lead us to a time of peace abroad and justice at home. You have my full support in such efforts. The president 
asked me to tell you that he telephoned President-elect Carter a short time ago and congratulated him on his victory. The people of the United States have made their choice, and of course I accept that decision. He has won. We are all Americans. He is our president, and we honor him tonight. He will be our president, and we'll work with him. This nation faces major challenges ahead, and we must work together. There is important work to be done, and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. I have said repeatedly in this campaign that the president is my opponent, not my enemy. And I wish him well, and I pledge my support. This is America. Just as we fight hard when the stakes are high, we close ranks and come together when the contest is done. But in an American election, there are no losers. Because whether or not our candidates are successful, the next morning, we all wake up as Americans. Whatever our differences, we are fellow Americans. And please believe me when I say, no association has ever meant more to me than that. I so wish that I had been able to fulfill your hopes to lead the country in a different direction, but the nation chose another leader, and so Ann and I join with you to earnestly pray for him and for this great nation. Thank you, and God bless America. Our guest today is Adam White, a good friend of the uh, podcast and of the Bulwark, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, first of all, good morning, Adam. Morning, Charlie. You know, it, it is amazing to me listening to those. And I've, I've spent some time listening to those over the last couple of days. And, I, you know, one of my reactions was we take this we've taken this for granted. I just always assumed that after the election, somebody came out and they made, you know, gracious comments, whether they met it, they met it or not. But they were crucial parts of the ritual of being an American. And they seem so alien now because, you know, that not only will Donald Trump not give a speech like that, you have millions of Americans, including much of the Republican Party, that just no longer thinks that sort of thing is necessary. So, I mean, it, it is it is it does feel like something has just kind of broken. The concession speech has really taken on the qualities of a constitutional institution, that moment at which the election ends and we turn towards we turn back towards the work of government. In that montage, the one that I was listening most closely for was President George H.W. Bush, because of course he's the one whose situation was most close to the one at hand, a sitting president who at the time throughout the election and at the time of the election is cloaked with the entire power of the presidency. Um, the act of a sitting president to concede defeat and then look to the future is stunning. The, the lines that the montage quoted were, uh, there is important work to be done and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him well. The line right before that clip though, is I think is, is telling for the present moment. President Bush said, and I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team, Clinton's team, to ensure the smooth transition of power. Uh, seeing George, what George H.W. Bush did, and the 1992 election was no cakewalk, uh, to see George H.W. Bush, a true statesman, turn toward in his final acts in office, um, helping his successor with whom he disagreed profoundly to prepare for taking on that office. Uh, obviously, we won't see that here, and I suppose that's because President Bush 
was a patriot who understood the gravity of his office and took it seriously. Uh, President Trump is neither of those things. No, and you know, to, you know on, on one level, everything that's happening right now is completely predictable. Not everything, but I mean, we, we knew that uh, Donald Trump was unlikely to leave graciously. We knew that he was probably going to challenge the legitimacy of the election. Uh, he had signaled that over and over and over again, and he is who he is. What I think is a little bit shocking if, if we're capable of being shocked anymore, is just the complete acquiescence of the Republican Party in all of this. This would have been the moment where you would have had the grown-ups be willing to stand up and say, well, Mr. President, we need to acknowledge this. Um, this race was not particularly close. There are no credible allegations of, of fraud. There is nothing that's going to happen that is going to turn this around. So, you know, this is what we do in America, but but they're not doing it. My my guess is that they they just think they're just buying themselves some time and creating some space for Trump to come to terms with this. And maybe they're hoping that the inevitable court rulings are going to provide them cover to acknowledge uh, Biden. But the reality is they're feeding this narrative that our democracy is no longer legitimate. I mean, there's long term damage there. It's sort of it's sad that the best case scenario is that they're just treating the president of the United States like a toddler who's yeah. having a temper tantrum and just needs some time to calm down. Um, like you, it's hard. I find it hard to be shocked anymore. But I have to say that morning consult poll that you began with, which I hadn't seen, mm -hmm. uh, to hear the numbers you read were truly demoralizing. And it and I, I can only hope that that poll is just is an outlier or something, because if it really is the case that 72 percent of Republicans uh, who ought to know better, um, that they don't think that we had a free and fair election. I, I, a number like 20%, even 30% would have shocked, wouldn't have shocked me. 72% is truly horrific. It It is. And and maybe the reason we're not shocked is we've kind of become numbed with all of the you know violation of quote unquote norms. But I mean, this, this is really, when you think about it, this is the greatest of Trump's violation of our, of our norms. I mean, shattering generations of bipartisan understanding that it was really important to maintain faith in the democratic system and the peaceful transfer of power. And, you know, you talk about some of these really bitter elections going back, you know, throughout the century, uh, you know, 1960, Richard Nixon, of all people being gracious, Al Gore being incredibly gracious. Uh, some of those races were, were very hard fought. Uh, even George McGovern was willing to do to do all of that. So that that's that's the danger here. You know, one of the things that I'm hearing, though, from Republicans, including some of the elected officials is like, OK, all right, you know, um, you know, we'll we'll get over it at some point. But the president's just asking questions. The president is just, you know, the, everybody has a right to you know file lawsuits, to go to court, to get the answer. And that's really all we're we're asking for is that the president be able to, you know, pursue his completely legal, you know, option of litigating this, right? I mean, so why not? Why, why not just let the legal process play out? That would be that rationalization. I think among lawyers especially, there's this basic sort of uh, ease or nonchalance about the lawsuits, right? They're lawsuits. Lawsuits are just a fact of life. There's a process. They'll sort themselves out. Um, and so when we saw these theories floated about legal claims that the president's campaign might bring, people started talking about, well, do the claims have merit? And of course, that's that's the most important question. But I'd say tied for the most important question is, the, is are these the kinds of lawsuits that a sitting president of the United States should take? And so that was the, the thrust of the piece I wrote for The Bulwark this week, that it's one thing for 
you know, a casino owner on the verge of bankruptcy to, you know, wield his team of trial lawyers like a club to fend off creditors or porn star girlfriends or whatever. Uh, but when we're talking about the president of the United States, who's, again, cloaked with immense power, but also immense, immense responsibility, for which he swore a oath was a hand on the Bible at his inauguration in front of the country and the world, I think the first question we need to ask is, are these the sorts of lawsuits that a president, a const- an American constitutional president, ought to just throw around? Uh, obviously, the answer is no. Okay, but go into that a little bit more detail because you're you're making a distinction, saying that yeah, if, if he's just a businessman, um, you know, why why not just keep throwing stuff up against the wall? Um, but there is something different about the president, and you know, who takes the oath to make sure that you know that the laws are are upheld and and, and enforced. So just, just talk about that a little bit more, because this is this is the this is, seems like the default setting of a lot of folks going. Well, just let the court system work it through. There's you know no harm no foul. At the end of the day, he's going to have to go. But why, why not at least let him? I mean, every American has the right to go to court and you know say whatever they want to say, right? <laughs> well, most Americans do. Um, Let's well, just, no, let's just, I mean, let's, in some ways, you're not you're yeah. not allowed to go to court and and just like fling bullshit at the judge, right? I yeah. mean, you should have at least some merit for your your. That's true. That's true. And I want to, I'll even grant as as I do in the article that the one of the legal claims that's being thrown around this question about whether what the Pennsylvania courts did with voting mail in ballot deadlines whether that violates the U.S. Constitution for reasons that you and I can get into. That's a really interesting claim, and I don't think it's frivolous. Justice Alito thought that he thought he wrote in a recent opinion that he thought there's a serious question of whether Pennsylvania violated the Constitution. I wouldn't have gone that far, um, but Justice Alito is a thoughtful constitutional justice, and, and you have to take that seriously. And so even when you grant that even some of the claims rise above the level of bullshit – I think we ought to pause before the president files the lawsuit. But yeah, just to be very clear here, most of the claims so far are bullshit, which no, you know, the the, the don't rise to the level of, of a lawsuit that anybody should file. Um, but we should even even with even if you take away that that fact, um, the fact that there are no real facts here supporting his case. Uh, there still is the question, well, what if there were some facts? What should the president do? And even then the president, I'd say, should stop short. So, you know, one thing that we ought to be clear about, and I know that people, there was a lot of, you know, real anxiety over the last 24 hours, you know, when you have the, you know, Department of Justice weighing in and all of this and the, the Secretary of Defense being fired. I do think that it's, it's, it's important to step back and go, hey, you know, despite all of this stuff, Trump has no chance of overturning the actual outcome of the election. This is not Florida 2000. Gore had to flip one state. It was about a thousand votes in one state this year. Trump could actually get this won't happen, but he could get all of Pennsylvania's electoral votes thrown out and he would still lose the election. And the amount of votes that you're talking about in that Alito decision, Mm -hmm. the question of whether or not you count these votes that came in after Election Day, Mm -hmm. I think those are probably in the in the hundreds or the low thousands of votes, not nearly enough to overturn the result of the election. In fact, there are no lawsuits right now that would rise to the level of if the court ruled 5-4, you know, Bush versus Gore, that would, in fact, hand him a second term. I mean, he's behind by about 11,000 votes in Georgia. He's still behind by about 14,000 votes in Arizona. He lost Wisconsin by 20,000 votes. Nevada, uh, 36,000 votes. Uh, Pennsylvania is going to be between 45 and 100,000 votes. Uh, he lost Michigan 
Is this actually right? Am I reading this by more than 100,000 votes? So, the, you know, this is not going to happen. There's no way that he he can overturn this, but he can drag it out. And apparently they've ordered uh, the agencies not to participate in the transition. So there's real damage there in slowing down the transition, the business of government. I agree completely with that. With, with the lawsuits, the upshot of them, it might not be that the president's trying to win in court. He might just simply be trying to, um, to, to shore up his brand before he returns to the private yeah. sector. Although there is, I think we should take seriously the, the question about whether what he's really trying to do is stir state legislatures to award the state's electors to President Trump, even though he didn't win a, a majority of the ballots in the in the state. I think that's a low probability thing. I, I, it's hard to imagine the state, a very low probability that it's actually happening. It's hard for me to imagine that they're actually, that the Trump campaign would even be seriously considering such a ridiculous and anti-constitutional approach. Um, but we have to keep that in mind too. But like you, I'm mostly worried about the smooth transition of power, the steady administration of government from one to the next, and what we're seeing both at, at the Department of Justice and also, as you mentioned, at the Government Services uh, Agency, the GSA. Um, they're both very worrisome. Well, uh, you, you mentioned the most extreme step. In fact, some folks called me yesterday and we're asking, well, what do you think about the Wisconsin legislature? Uh, you know, what about this buzz that they might actually unseat the Electoral College, you know, win and, and do, award the Electoral College votes to Donald Trump? Well, first of all, that cannot happen. Legally, it just cannot happen. Secondly, I can't imagine that, <laughs> that Republican legislators want to take a step that would be that radical. Now, that's Wisconsin. I can't speak for, for Georgia or Pennsylvania, but this would be one of those, those moments where you go, uh, be careful what you wish for, because do Republicans want that outcome? Do they really want to have the election thrown out? We had one state representative here. His name is um, uh, San Filippo. Who actually suggested that perhaps they 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 declare the election null and void and cast the electoral votes for Trump? And I got to tell you, he looks like a complete idiot. I mean, I can't figure out: is he just dumb? Does he think the base is dumb? Is he just you know throwing this stuff out there? So that's that's not going to happen. But Bill Crystal has a piece up in the bulwark today, and I think it's legitimate to at least throw it out. Going okay, so. You know, this is unlikely to happen, but are we 100% certain this doesn't soften the ground enough so that what seems almost unthinkable now becomes thinkable? And that, that's the test, the how often we have seen the unthinkable become the thinkable. Are we 100% certain that the state legislature in, say, Georgia won't start considering things that now seem outside the realm of the possible? And if the unthinkable actually happens in Georgia, are we certain that it could not then happen in Wisconsin? Yes. And Pennsylvania. Are we 100% certain? that the firing of Defense Secretary Esper is just a matter of spite. And he notes a little alarmism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Complacency in the defense of American democracy is no virtue. So, yeah, I think that we ought to be concerned. I just hope people kind of take a deep breath at some point. Republicans and conservatives have spent so much time in recent years trying to defend the Electoral College against yeah. uh, against critics on the left who want to amend it away or just, in effect, do away with it. I can think of no easier way to, to clear the runway for, for, for eliminating the Electoral College altogether than to take some of these gambits. Um, and just weaponizing state legislatures against the Electoral College. If I were the Electoral College right now, I'd be thinking with friends like these, who needs enemies? Um, Republicans I, might actually do more damage to the institution than Democrats if they actually humor some of these uh, crazy schemes. Well, and also it's, it's you, you think about 
going back to where we started, those concession speeches, that that sense that we need to come together as a country, we need to heal, we need to move on. He's the president of all Americans. I, I think there was an acknowledgement of the fragility of democracy, that democracy relies on faith, and that we have a peaceful transfer of power because the alternative is civil war. And the really frightening thing is that as this rhetoric amps up um, post post election, it does raise the question. I went to bed last night thinking about the fact that that this is a president that that is willing to push the country that much closer to actual civil war. And I know that may sound somewhat extreme, but can we be sure that there won't be people out there, a handful of unbalanced, crazed extremists out there who won't resort to violence? If this thing continues on this path, if you don't believe the election is real, then why would you basically acknowledge the electoral process? Why not take to the streets? You know, and and I, the, the the fact that we're even thinking about this is is a sign of of how dangerous the moment is. Yeah, an, an actual civil war would require people to stop watching Netflix for five minutes and get off their phones and actually fight. So that's unlikely. But what is more likely, I think, is just this general mood <laughs> of of mental secession, where after each presidential election, the party that doesn't get its way just sort of mentally secedes from 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 the nation, sees their government as sort of a foreign occupying power. Now, obviously, in a in a country that's based on federalism. Uh, there is something to be said for not constantly worrying about the federal government, not assuming that the federal government is the end all be all of everything. But we have the federal government for a reason. We're a nation for a reason. And uh, there has to be some sort of spirit of goodwill and community nationwide, even while we, we focus you know, more of our efforts optim- you know, optimally on, on our states and our local communities. And I think that modern technology really facilitates this mood of mental secession. I think that um, the ways in which we kind of create our own political regimes and subcultures through the the power of, of, of corporate power, the power of of you know states banding together in opposition of the federal government, all these things I think are very slowly but but in perceptible ways bringing us to this never ending climate of mental secession that I'm, I'm increasingly worried about. Actually, mental secession is better than actually shoot, uh, shooting secession. So um, I, I guess I am a little bit more concerned about the violence yeah. because when you think about the, 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 the practice of bringing your, you know, your semi-automatic weapons to political rallies, uh, the plot to kidnap and perhaps murder the governor of, of, of Michigan, and just the, the ongoing you know, hyper emotional demonization of opponents. And again, I'm not saying that it's going to be an actual civil war. I'm saying that, you know, when people become desperate in all of this, because it is, it is ugly and there's going to come a point. I mean, part of the problem is, is that, uh, you know, especially on, on the right, they convinced people that there was no way that Donald Trump could lose election. And so you will, at the end of the day, have tens of millions of people who will believe that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll believe that Donald Trump has been the victim. And again, maybe that's for his post-election uh, grievance. So let, let's just stick with this where we're at right now, the Department of Justice, because I, I, t- I mentioned to you right before we started this that I, I'm trying to figure out what Bill Barr has done here, um, whether it is, you know, the whether it's, uh, you know, ugly, bad or may, maybe not so bad. Uh, obviously, the indication that it's very, very bad. Uh, there's, there's several. Number one, the, the fact that the top official in charge of election crimes resigns in protest um, 
that's pretty dramatic. That's number one. Number two, um, and I'm going to read from the New York Times here, Barr's memo allows U.S. attorneys to bypass career prosecutors and make their request to his office for approval, effectively weakening a key safeguard that prevents political interference in an election by the party in power. And also pretty bad, the directive ignores the Justice Department's longstanding policies intended to keep law enforcement from affecting the outcome of an election. And it follows a move weeks before the election in which the department lifted a prohibition on voter fraud investigations before an election. So give me your sense of what's going on here. There's a good chance, Charlie, that I am the most pro-Bill Barr contributor to the bulwark. I've always seen Barr in, in more favor. Not a lot of competition for that. <laughs> I've always seen – that's really? damning my favorite There's phrase, a- I suppose. Um, yeah. I, uh, I've, always seen, I, I've always seen his efforts more charitably than others. Not always. I mean what happened um, in, in the, the square outside the White House was, was horrific. Um, and there's some things that he's done that I just – that just boggle the mind – but oftentimes what he does, I think, gets a, a negative spin. And so when I look at this memo that he he released on November 9th, the first thing I'm looking at is the language that really sort of limits and couches things, makes some of the, the very sort of caveats that you and I have been talking about. He says in his memo that most allegations of purported misconduct are not of such a scale that would impact the outcome of an election. He urges the department to to def- defer those sort of low-level irregularities until after the election is all wrapped up. He says that you know investigations can be conducted if there are clear and apparently credible allegations of irregularities that could outcome the election. But then at the end, he turns once more and says um, it's imperative that the department exercise appropriate caution. Um, non in this for the sake of as he says fairness neutrality nonpartisanship, he tells the leaders of the Justice Department that quote I trust you to exercise great care and judgment in addressing allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities. While serious allegations should be handled with great care, specious, speculative, fanciful, or far fetched claims should not be a basis for indicating for initiating federal inquiries, and nothing here should be taken as an indication et cetera, et cetera, that he believes that anything bad has happened. So I look at all those specifics and I say, okay, there's nothing here. But then you pan back from the trees to the forest and you say, but the memo itself, the fact of this memo is going to be is going to lend great credence to the people who are most whipped up over yes. this, including President Trump. And when President Trump tweets about this the other day, if I remember correctly, he tweeted to a Breitbart.com article trumping up the story. And surely the attorney general has, has to understand that his words are going to be taken not just literally but also seriously by a variety of audiences, including the ones who might actually do damage both politically or, as you said, damage through violence and menacing. Boy, that was an excellent analysis because um, – I, I agree with you. You know, just the announcement does give oxygen to some of these really unfounded claims. But the actual language of the memo is really hedged. And you can sort of see that he wrote it so he could show Trump, like, see, you know, I'm taking this really seriously. But he could also say to his troops at DOJ, look, specifically in that line that you quoted, that was interesting. He warned that specious, speculative, fanciful or far fetched claims should not be a basis for initiating federal inquiries, which is interesting since most of the claims that are out there are specious, speculative, fanciful, or far-fetched. 
But again, this provides cover for other Republicans not to acknowledge the election um, and for the rumor mongering. But what's really interesting, though, and and I and I think and I think you're right here. The um, you know, we, we, it feels like we've been doing this for for forever. Kaylee McEnany, who is is she still the White House press secretary? Is she working for the campaign? I don't know. I don't really care. But she she was um, gave a briefing yesterday. I think Fox News actually bailed on her. But she's asked about specific allegations of fraud. And I want to just play this because I think it's very, very revealing. Just let's play Kaylee. Sounds like, um, do you know that fraudulent votes were actually cast? Or are you simply saying uh, we don't know because we couldn't see it? Look, uh, what we are asking for here is patience. Ron, I just mentioned to you the more than I believe it was 130 affidavits in Michigan alone. Um, we're aware of all the reports of thousands of votes in Nevada that were cast by those who are not eligible. We're hearing this, these reports. We're seeing them come in. We are vetting them. Uh, we are getting affidavits. So right now we would point you to all of that. That information is publicly available. But what we're asking for right now is patience as we explore these equal protection claims, among others. So basically... You know, if, if, if you if you listen, she doesn't have anything. She has no evidence. Be patient for us to to collect it. So we got a hundred, you know, affidavits, you know, in, in a state that was won by more than a hundred thousand votes. But it is amazing, and I have actually spent some time trying to track down some of these allegations. What do you got? I mean, is there is there something there? And it is kind of amazing that with the stakes as high as they are in Trump world, they just can't come up with a single case. You know what, what, as somebody from Wisconsin, you know what to call, you know, patient expedition waiting to collect things. It's called fishing. Uh, It's a fishing expedition. It's stalling. It's a nice way to spend an afternoon uh, before you get back to to everything else in your life. That's what this is. Um, But they make sure to be, you know, begin these statements by by focusing on claims. Uh, before they sort of right. uh, filibuster on the fact that there aren't any claims. It just occurred to me listening to that that the, the bar memo is a good example of that as well. All the pages of caveats that you and I just read, uh, President Trump will never read any of that. What he will read yeah, right, is the right. subject line on the memo, which reads in all capital letters underlined, quote, post-voting election irregularity inquiries. Exactly. If, if the right, me- the right, right name for this memo is subject uh, you know, avoiding, uh, uh, you know, uh, avoiding investigation of dubious, speculative, you know, non-substantive claims, right? The framing yeah, we're, of we're, the we're, memo we're, is the memo for the purposes of President Trump. Okay, so uh, give an example of this. So uh, Daniel Dale is the fact check guy at CNN, and he and his colleagues looked into 50 names on this viral MAGA list that's out everywhere, uh, supposedly showing 14,000 Michigan cases of ballots being cast by dead people. Okay. So this is, this is everywhere. So of the, they, they, so they took a sample of 50 of those names, 37 of them are in fact dead, but no vote was ever cast. Five of them are alive and voted, which they're allowed to do. And, and eight of them are alive and did not vote. So they didn't find anybody out of the ones they looked at. They were all, but it doesn't matter because you just throw this stuff out there up against the wall. The other thing that's kind of remarkable to me are the number of people who have bought into these vast conspiracy theories about the late vote. And of course, this was something that we had been prepared for. We had been warned about. Um, we the mail-in votes were going to be counted later. 
And what's interesting is in states like Pennsylvania, the Republicans in the legislature refused uh, any efforts to have them countered or processed earlier. Same thing in Wisconsin. There's a very interesting story out of Wisconsin because there's a lot of viral stuff about that last minute dump of votes, you know, just enough votes to put Biden over the top. Well, uh, again, the, the clerks had been going to the legislature for years saying, hey, would you let us be able to at least open and process this so that we'll be able to count them on election night like they did in Florida? I mean, some states did it and they refused to do it. So they set it up this way and then are amazed that it plays out this way. And I'm just I'm just I'm kind of I'm you know, I'm, maybe we should be more inured to the incredible cynicism of all of this. But guys, a lot of these complaints and these conspiracy theories are based on just fundamental misunderstandings of the way things work. And so the chances of them actually getting any traction in the courts are like zero. I mean, they may win a case here or there about, you know, some, you know, thing like the the late votes in Pennsylvania. But but again, that is not going to change the outcome of this election. In an election this large, I mean, you know, 150 million votes for president or whatever the final number is, of course, there are going to be scattered examples of ineptitude and errors and even sometimes malfeasance on a very, very low scale. Of course, that's going to be the case. But the but nothing reaching a scale that's actually material or that justifies the fever dreams of people who are trying to pretend that President Trump was not you know, voted out of office. But all of this, I think, is a great example. Maybe it'll be one of the last examples we get. Um, well, no, actually, we'll get several in the, in the months to come of, of, of why so many of uh, President Trump supporters were wrong to say that you can distinguish a president's character or temperament from his policies, right? I don't like the tweets. I just like the policies. That was always phony. There's always a direct connection between the two. And this is a great example. If we had a president who was sort of capable of understanding the mechanics of the election, mechanics that he himself did as much as anybody to put into place, or if he actually understands the mechanics, but he's just you know lying and demagoguing about it. If we had a president who didn't do that, then we'd have a president who would understand what had just happened to him, would be willing to accept it, and would be willing to tamp down the flames of people who aren't following it as closely rather than inflame all of these people. And so once again, we see the basic course of our nation, not just in terms of its rhetoric, but in terms of how the people and government officials are actually conducting themselves, dramatically affected no, by the character of the president and the intelligence of the president or the lack of thereof of both. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. You know, one thing that I think that people don't fully understand about, I'm sorry to say, right-wing politics and the right-wing media these days, particularly right-wing media, is that in right-wing media, anecdotes are more powerful than data. Anecdata is more powerful than actual numbers, by which I mean, if you have three stories of misconduct or fraud, those three stories are going to be more powerful than the data of three million votes that are cast completely legitimately. You just need the story. You need the story of the one illegal immigrant who does something as opposed to the data that says that illegal immigrants are less likely to commit crimes. I mean, I fought against this for years. You cannot break through. That's almost a perfect example is, is you, you can say statistically this doesn't happen. But if you have a story, that's the story that will be viral. That's the story that will be emphasized. And I think that's part of the problem. Just one other ironic point that it seems almost too obvious to make, but it's necessary to make. So, you know, M Mitch McConnell out there, like others, 
who are saying that uh, you know we we need to you know there there might be problems with the election. You'll notice that you know the Senate and congressional races were on the same ballot as the presidential race. I mean, I mean, look like people if 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 Democrats were stealing the election, why didn't they steal congressional elections? Why didn't they steal Senate elections? Why are the Senate elections? completely settled and we're okay with them, but not the presidential elections. So, I mean, this is sort of obvious in and of itself. These are the same ballots. The other point is people who are out there going, well, there were many, many more ballots cast for president than for Senate. Well, that's always the case. There's never been a presidential election. That's just the way things operate. So again, a lot of this is just so it's frustrating because it's so dumb. No, it is. It is dumb. Um, but again, for me, I sound like a broken record. What's uh, maybe most frustrating of all is we have a real government in a real world facing real challenges at home and real threats abroad. God help us if China, you know, makes moves against Taiwan or something between now and January. And President, uh, sorry, Senate Leader uh, McConnell and others might think, well, this really isn't doing any harm. It's just a process. It's delaying just basic things like the GSA turning over the keys and the funding to the Biden transition to actually have a transition and be prepared for the next administration. We know this administration didn't take it seriously. It was documented by Michael Lewis in his book, The Fifth Risk, and by so many other journalists. Which I read. Yeah, but just this uh, turned out to actually be a very prescient and prophetic book in many ways uh, when when we reached the recent crises of COVID-19 and so on. But just even if President Trump didn't want to take that seriously, the Biden administration, despite all the policies that it's going to enact that I'm going to disagree with, they at least take that aspect of governance seriously. And we're sitting here waiting for the head of the GSA to just make this move under the law of turn of opening the door to a transition, a transition that if, 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 Somehow it turned out that President Trump was right and the election was stolen. GSA could then shut down the transition, but they won't even allow the transition to start um, over what I think is a, a pretty basic abuse of their legal authority. Okay, this is it raises an interesting question, and I, I, I don't know the answer to this at all. Um, uh, I, I, apparently, they ordered the Trump White House has, has ordered agencies not to engage in the transition, and there's been some talk that the Biden folks might actually. Um, go to court themselves. Is there any legal way that the Biden team can force the GSA's hand or influence that? Or is that totally in control of the Trump administration? Well, I, I don't think they'll be able to, the Biden campaign will be able to force their hand. Uh, this all comes down to the what's called the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. It's in the code for those who want to look it up. It's in a note to, to 3 USC 102. And the basic language really puts the discretion in the hands of the head of the GSA. I'm trying to bring up the language right here. It says, it just says, it, it comes in a definition of president-elect and vice president-elect. It says, those terms shall mean such persons as are the apparent successful candidates for the office of president and vice president, respectively, as ascertained by the administrator following the general elections. So it leaves great discretion in the hands of the yeah, administrator of GSA, yeah. but with the baseline assumption, as with all parts of the law, that the head of the GSA will actually use that power responsibly in real sort of grappling with the facts at hand and not just the demands of the president. So it's hard for me to imagine the Biden campaign actually forcing GSA's hand so long as the GSA administrator doesn't actually herself ascertain that the election has been won by Biden. This is one of those areas where you just 
the system relies on this one bureaucratic functionary to just do the right thing. Yeah, and there are some dates that are coming up that will force this. Uh, most of these states have not, you know, officially certified their elections. I think here in Wisconsin, we don't certify them until November 17th. And then after that point, you have the Electoral College votes. So there's 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 grounds to say that, OK, wait for the certification, wait for some of the other things. But after that point, after you've had the votes actually certified, I think it becomes a much tougher case to uh, to hold out. But we will see because we know that there's going to be no goodwill here. And uh, Donald Trump is also realizing there's no consequences for his behavior, which I have to say is um, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, but one of the things I think we learned in the last 24, 48 hours is that indeed Trump is forever. Um, he's not going away. He will continue to hold this whip hand over the Republican Party. They are still afraid to uh, even require him to behave with a minimal level of, uh, of constitutional dignity. And I think that that's the future. And, you know, I think people thought that I was, uh, I was crazy when I started speculating early on that, you know, he, he might run in 2024. I don't know that he's going to run in 2024, uh, Adam, but it's in his interest now to get people to think that he is. So this, this thing is going to hang over us like this miasma for a very, very long time. And anyone who hoped that there was going to be some sort of a snap to sanity by the Republican Party or that they would make a pivot of any kind or that there'd be an exorcism of Trumpism, that's just not going to happen. Back in 2017, I used to ask myself, what will President Trump's farewell address look like? And it turns out I was being too optimistic. He's never actually going to say farewell. You know, I was always hoping I had the same fantasy. I was thinking he should come out with Frank Sinatra's I did it my way. <laughs> he should just say I did it my way. And people are trying to feed him the lines like take the win, you know, claim all these great things. The Wall Street Journal is basically saying, hey, look, you know, say these things, take credit for all of these things. And then you can go off and you can start your own network and you can be aggrieved and everything. But just move on. Uh, Adam, Adam White, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Adam White is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, contributor to the Bulwark, and we really needed your insight uh, today with everything that's been going on. So thank you for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Charlie. Looking forward to next time when things will probably be even worse. I think that's true. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.